0: We, uh, we, we start off, all, all the textbooks do this. They start off with uh, bacteria viruses. Um, and viruses. Uh, and I have it as two different lectures. I think your text has it. Uh, what's the first chapter your, your, your text does? Is it viruses or is it bacteria? Viruses, bacteria, and archaea. Okay, so lumped them all together. Okay. I have missed two different lectures, but that's not, that doesn't really matter. Um, <clears throat> bacteria are uh, they're really fascinating. Uh, the, the the interesting thing is I, I have a microbiology class and tonight in lab they're going to uh, uh, take a, a nutrient agar plate they're going to, uh, in fact you, you may be doing this in uh, in your lab your uh, you're regular 102 labs uh, and you're just going to take it out somewhere in the building take the lid off expose it for a little while put the lid back on and then they're going to incubate it and uh, next week um, you'll see you uh, for almost doesn't matter where you put it, or where you, I think you actually have you swab a surface and put it on there. It isn't going to make much difference where you do that. Um, you're going to find a lot of things growing on your plate. Okay, and the purpose of that is to just reinforce the idea that bacteria are, are actually everywhere. Okay, the the term in micro that they use is that they are ubiquitous. Okay, um, which means basically you can find them almost anywhere. You live in a sea of bacteria. Uh, most people react to that as a horrible thing, but, the, but most bacteria are not harmful, okay? Well, the majority of them are not. Uh, we, yeah, we're going to get into antibiotic resistance, and that's, that is an issue today. It is a growing issue, okay? But, uh, uh, but most bacteria are are either harmless or they are quite helpful for other living things. But the majority of them are not harmful. <coughs> okay, so this is what we're going to look at in this uh, section, uh, so th- this is two different domains. Remember last time we talked about the three domains, bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. So bacteria uh, and archaeans together are all prokaryotic organisms, so we're going to look at those in this chapter. Uh, we're going to look at what is characteristic of, of uh, prokaryotic <coughs> organisms. Um and, and so, why? Uh, you know, basically, uh, I hope you find bacteria somewhat interesting. But what I'm really wanting you to understand is why they're put into a separate group. Okay, what are the characteristics that you know that put them aside from all the other living things? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and so, we'll look at that, those two domains, um, and then we'll look at about a little bit about how they reproduce, uh, which is quite different than eukaryotic cells do, and. Uh, and, and their uh, genetic diversity. In other words, uh, uh, bacteria are uh, exchanging DNA pretty much all the time. Uh, and so that, uh, and that, that is part of how antibiotic resistance spreads. It's not how it starts, but it's part of how it spreads once it exists. Okay. So those are the, the topics. <clears throat> all right, so we have uh, two, two uh, domains, uh, Archaea. Or archaebacteria, uh, you may see that term also, and then bacteria or eubacteria. Uh, the prefix "eu" in front of something means true or real. Uh, these are the true bacteria that we normally talk about. And there's uh, a couple of images of them. Um, you can see that they have flagella, uh, long. There. So bacteria don't just lay there. Uh, they're, they're, they're moving around pretty much all the time, if they can. Uh, not all of them, some of them don't move at all, but a lot of them can. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. But their movement, of course, is not that far from our viewpoint. But for a cell that is microscopic, uh, they, they move fairly long distances. And they have to do that in order to survive, because they're in an environment that may be, uh, that may change and it may become more hostile and they need to get away from that. And they have to have the ability to do that Okay, in order to stay alive. Now, we. it is thought that particularly the Arcanians, but and, and certainly the bacteria, they are evolutionarily primitive. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, okay, the word primitive is not a values judgment. Okay? It simply means that they are simple and they probably are more closely aligned with the first cells that existed. Okay. When you see that term used in biology, um, you want to make sure that if you know that we're, we're not saying anything about how successful they are. I mean, bacteria have been extremely successful. They've been around for billions of years. We have fossils, rocks, we have, uh, but in Australia, I think I have some pictures of later, there are these things called stromatolites they're kind of mushroom-shaped structures, and there are bacteria that live on the surface, and they secrete uh, uh, minerals as they do, and they build these mushroom-shaped structures in shallow, warm water. Uh, we have found fossils of those. We have found, you know, that are billions of years old. So we know that those these organisms have been around for much longer than we have. And, and my guess is they'll be here when we're gone, so... Okay, so we're looking at the year, earliest cells about three and a half billion years ago, okay, roughly, and that's a number that doesn't that means nothing, really. I mean, uh, that, that's such a long time that we would really have a hard time comprehending that. Uh, <clears throat> but if you look at a timeline, and you look at when animals uh, appeared, and if you look at where the first humans appeared six million years ago. Um, in the overall scheme of things, uh, we're newcomers, okay? Now we have abilities that allow us to transform the planet, which we have done, uh, sometimes for good things and sometimes not so great, uh, but, uh, but bacteria also transformed the planet, and we'll get a little bit into that, and that will be primarily right here where the origin of photosynthesis, and that's where that changed the entire atmosphere of the planet <clears throat> is that, that production of oxygen. Okay. Uh, so they, they, they are part of what formed the environment that all of the other organisms could survive in. Okay, So, been here a long time. Uh, fairly primitive, okay, but for whatever that is that's worth. Okay, so here's a, a typical cell. Now, okay, as, as much as there is such a thing as a typical cell. Uh, this is kind of what E. coli would look like, which is kind of a, the standard. Uh, it's used, used a lot in research, and of course you guys have lots of them in you right now. Uh, <clears throat> particularly in the colon, in the large intestine. Small intestine, not nearly so many. And in fact, we're, there's uh, just this week, there's been a paper come out revising the whole idea of what the ratio is in, in, in humans of bacteria to, to our own eukaryotic cells. For a long time, people have been saying, Oh, if, if we were to take you apart, cell by cell, there would be ten times as many bacterial cells as there are your own cells, uh, and that's been going on for some years now. Uh, somebody else now has gone back and looked at the assumptions made when that was done and said, well, wait a minute, I don't agree with those assumptions, and they think it's more like maybe one to one or maybe, maybe two bacteria to one, uh, but certainly not ten to one. Oh, again, that's science. It's always in flux, okay, um, which is fine. Uh, that's kind of how things work. All right, so this is uh, a cell. Now, this is very small. Uh, when you took 101, you should have in lab looked at your, uh, you should have scraped the inside of your cheek a cheek cells. <clears throat> These would be about, if, if, uh, if this was your very unimpressive little Cheek cell with a nucleus in here. okay, Something like that would be about that big. Okay. So they're very small, extremely, extremely small. Now, uh, so they have cytoplasm. And outside the cytoplasm, there's a cell membrane. All living things have a cell membrane. You would have talked about that with cells. Remember the, the double layer phospholipid thing. Okay. All living things have cell membrane and cytoplasm on the inside. (laughs) That's a universal, Now, bacteria have the DNA, but the DNA is not in a separate compartment like your cells are. And and, uh, this is why we call them prokaryotic cells. But that area is called a nucleoid. Uh, No uh, organelles to speak of, which you're used to seeing in the diagrams of cells all those lines and things that you desperately tried to remember and probably forgotten most of them by now uh, from last semester. Uh, But they do have ribosomes. So what are ribosomes for? Okay, ribosomes are where proteins are made. Okay, every living thing has to be able to make proteins. So bacteria have ribosomes because they have, just like anything else, they have to be able to make proteins. Now, outside of the cell, most bacteria, almost all, there are a few that do not, have a cell wall. Okay, right here. Uh, and this cell wall is what protects them. Uh, if you remember when you talked about osmosis? Everybody's, you know, again, one of those favorite topics from 101. Osmosis is what happens... When you have a cell membrane, and on one side of the cell membrane you have a higher concentration of some dissolved substance than on the other side, and the membrane will not let that substance through, and so then water moves across the membrane to the other side. Well, the cytoplasm of a cell has lots of dissolved stuff in it. Okay, it's why water is so important because it's a great solvent and inside of you is a lot of water with stuff dissolved in it and all those proteins and uh, car- complex carbohydrates aren't going back out through that membrane they're too big and so cells will take in water okay unless you maintain them in the proper environment okay now a lot of these guys live in a- aqueous environments or, or even saltwater environments and what that does is it tends to either push water into the cell or take water out. And the osmotic pressure uh, for where many of these live would cause your cells to basically explode. So much water would go into them that eventually the cell membrane would just burst and the cell would die. Well, how do they avoid that? Well, they have a cell wall. That cell wall is made out of a very unique uh, 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 material. I think I have that on here Uh, but basically it's like somebody has taken and knitted a uh, a, 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 a complete covering around it so that when that extra water goes into the cell and it tries to swell the cell wall stops them and protects them from being from being killed okay. uh, the the way the cell wall is put together varies from one type of bacterium to another and is a major medical issue um, we'll talk about that in just a um, outside of that, some bacteria, not all, but many of them, have what they call a glycocalyx. Now, glyco if, refers to what? What do you think? Sugars. Yeah, sugar. sugar <coughs> glucose. Okay? Uh, this is a, uh, a protein carbohydrate layer. We would refer to it as uh, mucousy, slimy, uh, sticky. Uh, And and many bacteria have these. Okay, so right now, uh, you probably, you have this going on on your teeth, for instance. Okay, hopefully you ate something this morning. Um, And there would be some sugars in that. Uh, And bacteria in your mouth are busy using those sugars. And many of them have this outer wall, outer glycocalyx, that helps them to stick to things like your teeth. And, and that's where plaque comes from, okay? They stick right to the enamel of the tooth while they're di- digesting this. They are usually doing fermentation. Uh, if you remember fermentation from last semester, the products of fermentation uh, for most of these, are, most of these bacteria are uh, acids, like lactic acid, and the acids are what eat holes in your, you know, eat away at the enamel, okay? This also, Inhibits white blood cells from engulfing, them. It slows them down. It does stop them, but it slows them down. And so many pathogens have that outer layer. I think. Okay. Yeah, when you talked about DNA, uh, if you remember the experiment by Frederick Griffiths, <clears throat> easy for me to say, Griffiths, um, about the uh, bacteria that cause pneumonia, there were two kinds, two strains. One caused pneumonia, the other one did not. The difference between them was that the one that causes it had this outer slimy layer, and the other one didn't. So when the other one was injected into a mouse, the white blood cells of the mouse gobbled them up so fast they couldn't cause any, any problems. The other ones, they were unable to do that. Okay. So this is an important layer. So when you look, look at it from inside out, you're going to see cytoplasm, Cell membrane, so a living thing, has got to have a cell membrane. Cell wall, almost all bacteria have a cell wall. There's a few that don't. If you're a bacterium and you don't have a cell wall, you better find a protected place to stay. Ah, oh, well, eukaryotic cell, we go inside of one of those, that would be a great place. We can just live in there. And that's what they do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then you have the glycocalyx, or that kind of slime layer on the outside flagellate here, uh, so they can move around. All right, now, like everything else, we want to try to group bacteria, we want to try to classify them. Bacterial classification is an absolute mess um, because they don't, they don't do things the way other living things do, and it makes it very, very difficult to, uh, uh, to have a classification. But we're gonna look at classification by uh, something called a Gram stain. You should, uh, should be doing that in lab uh, probably next week. Uh, the shape of the cell, their metabolism, and what are their oxygen requirements. So we're going to talk about each one of those. briefly. Okay, so this is a, a diagnostic tool, uh, medically diagnostic. Not used nearly as much as it used to be because we have so many other ways uh, to determine what bacteria we're dealing with. Uh, we have lots of uh, biotech material, uh, tests, uh, ELISA tests, things like that, that you can find out uh, in uh, minutes what bacterium you're dealing with, instead of having to grow them for several days before you know what, which one you're, de- you're dealing with. Um, it's like the uh, uh, test for strep throat. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So years ago, swabbed the person's throat. It sent that to the lab. The lab put it on auger plates, There's several different kinds of auger. They let it grow take about two days, about the third day, they'd say, oh, yep, they got strep. They have, they have the, the organism that causes strep. Okay. Um, now, they can swab your throat with a, a, a biotech, thing, that's called the ELISA test, and they can know within five minutes. That matters because strep throat is a potentially very serious disease because it can lead to scarlet fever, which can lead to heart valve damage. If you want to get on that right away, if, if that's what somebody has. All right. So, uh, but one of the ways that we used to be able to, uh, and, we, and this is still done, is we identify them using something called a gram stain. Now, gram stain, and uh, you're going to do that in lab, I won't go through all the details. But when you use the gram stain, all of your bacteria will either end up being dark blue, uh, and these are called gram-positive because they are, they retain the staining, the dark blue stain. Or the dark blue stain is gonna get washed away and we use a counter stain so that we can at least see them because if you don't stain them with something, you can't see them in the microscope. And they're gonna look pink. And they're called gram-negatives. Now, all right, so that's great. Uh, and, and it is a, a useful tool because um, this simple uh, little staining which you can do in about 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, uh, you can divide all your bacteria into one or two groups based on that, okay? So that, that eliminates half of the possibilities if you have an unknown organism. And it's quick, easy to do. Uh, okay. Now, the reason this happens is to do with their cell wall structure. And this is important medically, okay? All right. So gram positives have, this is their cell membrane, We saw diagrams like this before. This is the cytoplasm here.
1: And then they have this thick layer of a
0: substance of of cell wall. It's made out of a substance called peptidoglycan, unique to bacteria. So it's a combination of proteins and sugars. Very complex. We're not going to go into details on that. Alright, so they have a fairly thick wall, uh, and that's it. Now they may have a flagellum or a felis. these are little structures that stick outside. Uh, but, but that's that's uh, their cell wall.
1: Gram negatives, on the
0: other hand, here's their cell membrane. Here's a very thin layer of peptidoglycan, this pink stuff right here. And then outside of that, they have a much thicker outer membrane. Now, this outer membrane contains a substance that your immune system reacts to very, very strongly. Okay, it's called lipopolysaccharide. You don't need to memorize that. Uh, but sometimes your immune system causes you problems in its strong reaction to that. Many and this outer membrane of these gram negatives restricts the ability of, of m- many materials to go through the, the, the membrane. Now, some of those materials are antibiotics. If I can't get the antibiotic into the cell, it isn't going to work. Okay? And so uh, it's important to know, and uh, if somebody has an infection and we don't know yet what it is, it's at least important to know is it a gram positive or gram negative? Because that affects which antibiotics potentially could be used. Okay. So this is a, a this is an important tool medically. They have, they come in very specific shapes, most bacteria. Uh, they either come in little ball shapes, which is called a caucus, okay? Um, so when, if you have a streptococcal infection, it doesn't tell you which organism it is, it simply tells you that the cells are little, little ball-shaped things, and the strepto tells you they come in chains. If it's staphylococcal infection, they're little ball-shaped cells, but they come in clusters, like grapes. <coughs> That's all that's really telling. Me. Uh, over on the, the right there, those are rod-shaped cells called a bacillus. E. coli is a rod-shaped cell, only much smaller than those. That's a large rod-shaped cell, just to uh, illustrate that. Or they come in little corkscrew shapes, which are uh, a, a third basic shape and they're referred to as a spirillum or a spirochete, depending on whether they're rigid or are they flexible. And so, when you look at, on a microscope and you, and you uh, see these little tiny cells, which are difficult to see, um, and you see those particular shapes, you know right away you're dealing with a bacteria. Okay. Unique shapes. All right, then there is their metabolism. Uh, we mentioned this last time, uh, we get our, there are two things that every living thing has to take in to stay alive. Uh, have, it needs a carbon source, needs nitrogen source too, but a carbon source,
1: and it has to get an energy
0: source. We don't, we don't get this option. We have to do that. For us, we can only use Already produced large complex molecules as our carbon and energy source. So, uh, where do we find those? Well, other living things make those. Plants start the process, and then that passes to other animals. And so, we have to eat something else that was alive in order to get both of those things. Well, bacteria don't necessarily work Okay, so one of the possibilities we're going to look at, uh, they could be a photoautotroph. Okay, photo tells me that they're using light as an energy source. There are a lot of bacteria that do photosynthesis. Okay, so when we, when we say photo, we mean light is their source. Autotrophic means they're going to use that energy source to take simple inorganic materials in their environment and build them into big complex molecules. Uh, plants do the same thing. They do. The, they're photoautotrophs also. But that's one method. But you won't find a plant out there that does either of these things. You won't find an animal that does that. There are bacteria that do all of these things. I mean, no one bacteria does all of them, but you can find bacteria doing each of these. That's why we say they are metabolically diverse. Lots of different ways. Okay, chemoautotroph. These are organisms that are getting their energy source um, from already built up molecules, like we do. So they're absorbing molecules, complex molecules from the environment, and then they're using that to build their own molecules from simple building blocks. So they're autotrophs, they're making their own materials from simple inorganic materials but they're taking in more complex molecules in order to, uh, as an energy source. They break those down and make ATP, just like you do. And there's a couple ways they can do that, don't worry about that. And then we have chemoheterotrophs, okay? So these organisms are getting both their energy and their carbon by taking large complex molecules that other living things have made and breaking them down. That's what we do. And that's you, know, you, you gotta eat something or you're in trouble, but at least eventually. Now, uh, often these from the bacterial viewpoint are put into one of two categories. They can be parasites, uh, m- m- most of the ones that are pathogens are using, I mean, we consider the pathogens because they cause disease in us. And that's because they're using us, our molecules, our stuff, as their energy and carbon source, and in the process, they cause damage to your cells, to your, to your systems. And so when that happens, we say, well, they're, they're causing a disease, they're a pathogen. Okay. Right. You have organisms living in your intestinal tract that are Essentially parasites. I mean, they're, they're using the stuff you've already partially digested and to live on and all that, but they don't cause any harm. So we're, we're quite happy to have them. there. They don't hurt us any. Um, and then there's saprobes, and these are the bacteria out in the environment that are breaking down things that are already dead. Okay. So when you see something rotting, we, we, you know, rotting to us means yeah, that's awful, you know, horrible stuff. All it means is that bacteria and also fungi probably are taking those materials from dead things uh, and basically break, slowly breaking them down and recycling the materials and using that as their energy source. We call those sap ones. Okay. So bacteria do. You will find bacteria to do any one of these. You will not find animals that can do all of these different things. You will not find plants or fungi that do each of these things. Bacteria can do them all. Part certain bacteria can do them all. Now, uh, OK, if we, um, I used to have a, a video we used. It's been a long time ago. Uh, there was a guy, they were talking about cell respiration, aerobic cell respiration. And he, would, he was the biggest guy would say, if you take an animal and you take away the oxygen from them, what you have is a piece of dead meat, okay? Uh, because that's what you know, we require oxygen all the time. Okay, you can go about four minutes without oxygen, and at that point, your uh, ATP supply has been pretty much exhausted, and cells start to die. Those with the highest energy requirements start to die first, which are nerve cells, generally speaking. Okay. Um, all right. So. have to have oxygen so when we look at bacteria again diverse we have bacteria that are obligate aerobes okay obligate means must can't survive without aerobes means they need oxygen just like you do okay one example of that there's lots of these but one example of that is the organism that causes tuberculosis shouldn't be a surprise that it wants to live in your lungs Lots of oxygen there, okay? So they have to have that. Then we have some that are obligate anaerobes. In other words, they cannot live, they can't even live in the presence of oxygen. Oxygen is harmful to them. Uh, They do not use oxygen at all. Now, the reason this is a problem, I'll just briefly again uh, mention this, during the process of metabolism using oxygen, there are molecules produced which are quite harmful. They're called oxygen radicals. And you have an enzyme, anybody, any organism that uses oxygen has an enzyme that takes those things, breaks those down into uh, uh, hydrogen peroxide, but not too great either. But then we have another enzyme that breaks that down into water and oxygen. And that happens, enzymes work really quickly. So it's a constant. Any, there are bacteria that lack those enzymes. And so oxygen is, oxygen actually kills them. Um, Clostridium technique causes, as you might guess, tetanus. More commonly known as lockjaw, or whatever. What it does is the organism produces a toxin which uh, Prevents muscles from relaxing properly. And so you get uh, essentially uh, what's called tetany. When a muscle is fully contracted, that's called tetany uh, in anatomy. That's what we would call that. Calcium tetany, that's what it does eventually. And when your diaphragm gets paralyzed, then it's all over. Okay. Because you can't breathe anymore. And then we have these guys here. They're facultative anaerobes. So what that means is they will use oxygen happily when it's present, but when it's not there, we're good. We're going to switch to fermentation and we can survive on that. They can do either one. Okay. It's very handy for these organisms. Uh, and so you find a lot of these um, a lot of these in the intestinal tracts of organisms because the, the, as you go through the intestinal tract, uh, there's less and less oxygen available and when you get into the colon, it's basically an anaerobic environment for you. Okay. And of course the bacteria are generally moving because everything's moving through your intestinal tract and they can survive in any of those, those areas. Okay. So we can have certain oxygen requirements. Okay. It can either be an obligate aerobe, obligate anaerobe, facultative anaerobe. And there are some other categories. Uh, And micro would go into some other more complex categories And so this is another way you can classify microbes or bacteria what their oxygen requirements are Uh, Then there's something called numerical taxonomy and what you do is you can this is usually we're talking here about an unidentified microbe and what you do is you compare it to other known organisms uh, based on on these categories and the more traits that they share with another organism then the more closely related they are to that particular species none of this is overly satisfactory with uh bacteria but it's it's kind of all we have now what is again what's happening with bacteria just like other organisms is dna and rna analysis is sometimes showing us that organisms are not related to who they thought we thought they were. And, uh, and bacteria make this a really difficult process. Uh, you can look at their biochemistry. Okay, so, gene sequencing, uh, RNA sequencing. Sometimes they do uh, protein sequencing, amino acids, and make the proteins. Uh, and, and that's now, reproduction. You did mitosis last semester, right? Remember that? Sort of, okay. Prophase, metaphase, anaphase, all that stuff. And then you did meiosis, okay? Two different things for different purposes. Mitosis produces identical cells. You take whatever you got and you make a copy of it that's absolutely identical. That's the whole point of mitosis. Meiosis, but the point of meiosis was to reduce the amount of genetic material so that you could have sexual reproduction. Okay, so you didn't double the number of of chromosomes every generation. right, bacteria don't do either of those. First of all, bacteria have generally one chromosome. Most of them. Few exceptions, but most of the time they have one chromosome. Usually it's circular. And so when they reproduce, again, remember they're tiny begin with. What they're going to do is replicate the DNA so that they have two DNA molecules. These will attach to the cell membrane and then they will grow more membrane and cell wall between those two so that they get moved into opposite ends and then the cell simply divides. This is called bacterial fission. It's a very simple way of reproducing. Uh, meiosis is not an issue, they only have one chromosome. In, in essence, they're always haploid like, because they have a, just the same the chromosome. Now, this can happen fairly quickly or it can take a while, it depends on the kind of bacteria. Tuberculosis, for instance, takes about 24 hours to do this. It's pretty slow-growing. E. coli, given all of the nutrients it wants, will do this every 20 minutes. So you start with one, and 20 minutes you have two, and then 20 minutes later four, and 20 minutes later eight, and you can get a lot of bacteria in a the hurry. They're growing very rapidly. This depends on the particular species, and, and do they have all of the nutrients that they require for growth? Okay. But compared to what we're used to, uh, they grow quite rapidly. Now the the fatality rate for bacteria is also quite high. There's all kinds of things out there that eat bacteria. We get to proteins, to little single-celled animals and that. Lots of those guys are eating bacteria. There's little worms that eat bacteria, little tiny microscopic worms. Being a bacterium is not all fun and games, okay? It's, you know, you may find yourself becoming food for somebody else. See, we don't deal with that. But humans, for the most part, do not have to worry about becoming somebody else's lunch. Well, there's places where that still happens. Okay, crocodiles in, in uh, Australia occasionally eat people. On occasion, uh, lions, tigers do kill and eat people. That's fairly rare though anymore. Uh, bears eat people. Okay, I lived in Alaska for eight years. Every year, people got eaten by bear. A, I mean, not a lot, you know, but people would, they would find remains. You know, a bear had, had killed them and eaten them. Uh, there was a photographer. I remember that one year he was in uh, Denali Park. He was there. He wanted to photograph bears, and they have they have guidelines. Don't get closer than X distance from the bear to the bear, or you're going to antagonize them. Uh, well, they found his remains later, and they found his camera, and the last picture he was like from here to there from the bear. Really stupid. Okay, uh, yeah, not very smart. Because you can't outrun a grizzly bear. Not going to happen. The only way you can outrun a grizzly bear is if there's two of you and you're faster than the other, one. and you can outrun them. That's pretty much it. Um, and in those areas, like in Denali Park, there aren't a lot of trees that you can climb up. Now, grizzlies don't climb. That's well, that's a good news. But most of us, most of the trees in those areas, are not going to really help you a lot. Okay. So anyhow, reproduction relatively quickly for bacteria. Now, why do we have sexual reproduction? Do you remember? What was the purpose of it? Genetic Genetic variation. Taking DNA from two individuals, combining it into a new one, getting genetic variation. Because that's how natural selection works, is on genetic variation. And if there's no genetic variation, and there are organisms that reproduce totally asexually, and uh, a lot of them are microbes and this is really great when conditions are ideal for your growth you can grow rapidly but when conditions go bad you're all going to die together too okay well that's not really very conducive to species continuing okay and so the, the the approach here is lots of variation some that are optimal, some on either end that are not so optimal, but then as your environment shifts back and forth, there will always be somebody who is relatively optimal. That's the plan. Okay, so bacteria actually do have ways of exchanging DNA. Okay, There are three, this is called horizontal gene transfer, and it's called that because while E. coli may transfer DNA to another E. coli, they'll also transfer DNA to salmonella or or they don't care, okay. They will transfer DNA to any neighboring uh, or accept DNA from any neighboring bacteria. Uh, they're very, uh, they're not really picky about their partners. Okay? So, but there are three basic ways that this occurs, okay. Now, and then there's, of course, the ultimate source of variation as mutations. Now, as for bacterium, when you have a mutation, you have only one copy of that gene. It's either going to be helpful, or it's going to be neutral, or it's going to kill you, okay? Um, and so, but mutations, if you don't have any mutations, you have no, no gene combinations. Now, mutations are essential, okay? Now, assuming that you are surviving, okay, then you can transfer cells. Now, one way is something called conjugation. This is the closest that we come to sex and bacteria. Both organisms, both bacteria, survive at the end. That's not the case in the others. Uh, and so, what they will do is they will uh, get close enough, they build a little bridge across. Okay? Here's a here's an alternative uh, picture, an actual image of one, they build a bridge, and then they, besides their main chromosome, bacteria often contain small circular bits of DNA called plasmids. This is quite common. And what they will do is that plasmid will initiate replication, it will copy itself, and as it does, one copy is sent through the bridge to the other cell and then the other copy is retained by the other. And so now both bacteria have that that little plasmid. Now, plasmids usually don't have a lot of genes on them. Could be anywhere from four or five up to maybe 20. That's about it. Okay. But it's, it turns out that most of our antibiotic resistance genes are located on plasmids. And so bacteria can exchange them. And do exchange them. Okay. So this is uh, conjugation. Again, does not have to be uh, necessarily between same species. Which that tells you then, well then, what does that species designation mean? No, it doesn't appear to mean a lot. In, in other animals, uh, in the more complex animals, our basic definition of a species are two sets of organisms that cannot are unable to reproduce with each other. That's how we kind of say, all right, well they're separate species. This does not work with bacteria. That's why their classification is really messy because of that. Is that the same for like regardless of the chromosome count of the bacteria, or does that affect? The- well, this is separate from their main chromosome, and usually which they usually only one. That's is, yeah. is it because of they only have the one chromosome? Yeah. And, and they may have more than one plasmid. Um, okay. But anyhow, this is one method of transferring plasmid from one vector to another. And so they walk away, both of them have the plasmid now, and they're both alive. Okay. So that's one method. Uh, back here. Method number, um, for, I'll go back transformation. Again, Frederick Griffiths discovered bacterial transformation. Remember that whole deal? okay? He had the bacteria that were not pathogenic, did not cause pneumonia. If you inject those into a mouse, the mouse doesn't get sick, the mouse is happy. You have the pathogenic ones, you inject those into a mouse, the mouse gets pneumonia, it dies, and when you autopsy it, you can isolate those pathogenic bacteria out of it. You can heat treat those pathogenic bacteria and kill them. And then if you put them in the mouse, eh, no big deal, they're dead. They can't do anything. When he took dead pathogens and live non-pathogens, mixed them together, put that in the mouse, the mouse got pneumonia, it died, and then they autopsied it. There were live pathogen, pathogenic bacteria. Now, Griffiths had absolutely no idea what was going on, didn't know what was happening. Uh, to begin with. I mean, you know, okay, this is a new thing. I don't know what's going on here. So, but he called it transformation. He said that the, the uh, strain that was non-pathogenic was transformed into a pathogenic strain. Now, what is actually happening is that when you kill the bacteria, it breaks open and spills its DNA into the environment. And under some conditions, other bacteria can pick up bits of that DNA and incorporate them into their chromosome. So I'm a non-pathogenic bacteria. And that's a nice-looking little piece of DNA. Grab it, bring it into the cell, incorporate it. Oh, this has got a path. This has got the genes to make me a pathogen now. Okay, uh, that's called transformation. Bacterial transformation. We can do that easily. We do it in the lab. My Bio 170 class is going to do it this semester semester. I'm going to do a transformation. Okay, Get, get a, a bacterium to pick up a plasmid and we'll know that it has because the plasmid we use um, has an, a, an antibiotic resistance gene on it uh, and it also has a gene that produces a fluorescent protein so that when you expose them to ultraviolet light and they've had a certain sugar as part of their diet they glow. Cool okay. It's kind of fun to do. It's really easy to do. It's going on out there all the time. That's okay? what they do. And then the last one is transduction. This gets into viruses. Everybody's got viruses, okay? We have got a whole thing here on viruses, but everybody's got viruses. Uh, we have viruses, plants have viruses, fungi have viruses, bacteria have viruses. Everybody's got viruses, okay? And what the virus does with bacteria is it sits on the outside? It attaches to the outside of the bacterium, assuming that it is specific for that bacterium. <coughs> you can kind of get a picture of it right here. It injects its DNA into the bacterium, or gets the bacterium to pull the whole virus in. One or the other, and then it takes over the machinery of that cell and makes new virus particles, and eventually kills the bacterium. And then new virus particles pop out. So, once it gets in there, it has to do two things. It has to make new viral DNA, or RNA, depending on what kind of virus it is. And they have to make new proteins for the outer coating. And then they have to assemble those. They assemble the, the, the head, the coating, and then they pack it the DNA. And most of these viruses have a gene that says, okay, you put this much DNA in, you cut it. You go to the next head, you put this much DNA in, and you cut it. And then you just keep doing well, in the process, it turns out viruses are really, really sloppy in the way they do. Sometimes, when they're packing DNA into those heads, they grab a small piece of the bacterial chromosome and pack it in there right along with the rest. When that infects the next bacterium, assuming it's not enough to kill that bacterium anymore, then that bacterial DNA. transduction. It was thought at one time, and it's still being looked at, is this a way we'll, that we could use to transfer genes into people who have defective genes? The problem is targeting the right cells, making sure that it happens, making sure there are not side effects. It's not that easy to do, but in principle it's easy. Okay. So the point here is bacteria are uh, Transferring DNA laterally from one to another all the time. Genetic diversity its important, even for bacteria. So it's pretty much thought that domain bacteria represent some of the very oldest, and then domain archaea came in here, probably very old as well. I uh, don't worry about all these names, I don't care that you memorize any of these, you just a list of some of the groups. Purple sulfur bacteria, they, okay, so they do photosynthesis, but I agree, they use, it, they use sulfur in, in, in the process of doing photosynthesis. Uh, there's enteric, anytime you see the word enteric, that means they live in the intestinal tracts, usually in mammals, but could be some, some others, but definitely animals. Vibrios are kind of comma-shaped. Um, the big, the big one that we're well, there's uh, uh, the major ones that we're concerned about is uh, Vibrio uh, cholerae, causes cholera. Cholera is a nasty intestinal disorder. It kills people every day. Right now. now, we don't have it here because you get it by drinking contaminated water. Our water supplies are maybe not perfect, but they're relatively pathogen-free. We're, we're pretty good with about that. Um, what's interesting about cholera, the, the vibrio there, is it actually lives in a saltwater small crustacean is where it's usually found. And it inserts itself into the intestinal wall of these little crustaceans. Now, crustaceans are living in saltwater. This means that they're, they have a problem with excess salt. They get rid of excess salt somehow. All, all marine organisms have this issue. They gotta get rid of excess salt. The little Vibrio, little bacteria, opens a little pore there and it pumps sodium ions into the intestinal tract so they can be gotten rid of. Okay, everybody's happy with this arrangement. And then you drink water that has that in it, it gets into your intestinal tract and it tries to do the same thing. Except when we pump up. Sodium ions followed by chloride ions into our intestinal tract. By osmosis, water follows into the intestinal tract, and you get severe diarrhea. Uh, literally, you can lose within 24 hours, you can lose a couple liters of liquid water. You can't tolerate that for very long. Okay, uh, Children can... Infants can die of this overnight, from dehydration. Because in some of the countries where this happens, a source of clean water to rehydrate them is not available. And if medical care is not available, that's the problem. So one of the things that aid agencies send to these countries are bottled water with the proper electrolytes in it so that you can give this to infants to keep them. In third world areas, uh, the most common cause of death of infants is, is diarrhea. Intestinal. Because they, they're they're tiny, they dehydrate so fast. And when you're dehydrated, you die. <clears throat> Pretty simple. Um spiral heats, they're little screw shaped things. Um, cause Lyme disease. We got that right here. Okay. The ticks here carry Lyme disease. This area, or some of them do, not all of them, but some of them do. Um, they also uh, cause syphilis, which is actually on the increase again. Uh, easily treated, fortunately, that one responds to penicillin. Still, it's pretty easy to get rid of. Um, Lyme disease not so easy to get rid of. Um, and uh, so then we have the cyanobacteria. These are the photosynthetic bacteria. It used to be called the blue-green algae. Now they're called cyanobacteria. They're, they're, they're photosynthetic uh, bacteria. Graham positives here. Uh, we have some that form something called endospores. Now, yeah, endospores are highly resistant to drying out, they're resistant to uh, disinfectants, they're resistant to heat, um, they're very difficult to kill. Um, and, and so these organisms can survive. Uh, anthrax is caused by organisms like this. It's a soil bacterium. Uh, usually, it's not live bacteria, people uh, who get anthrax, it's from the spores. That's how they get that. Uh, tetanus is the same thing. Um, and so is uh, now we'll see uh, yeah, I'll just in So just some organisms. Uh, we tend to focus on those that cause us problems most bacteria do not. I mean, let, let's be realistic, everything you eat every day has bacteria on it. If you touch it with your fingers, you got, they've got bacteria on it. You don't get sick, because most of those bacteria are not going to cause a disease. Being every To live in a sterile environment, probably A, not good for you, because your immune system needs to be periodically challenged so that it keeps functioning at an optimal level, and two, it's impossible to get. You can't possibly live in a sterile environment, not going to happen. So we learn to live with because we don't get a choice. Okay. These are an important group here, um, E. coli, these are bacterial bacteria, these are intestinal. These are the ones that, that uh, make nitrogen available for plants. Nitrogen, it, what, what do you need to have nitrogen for? We need it too, but we get it by eating other things that have, have proteins in them. So we get plenty of nitrogen. What, what do organisms need to have nitrogen for? Okay, remember your four macromolecules, right? Remember there were four of them there were carbohydrates, lipids. Proteins and nucleic acids. So, which of those need to have nitrogen? Nucleic acids, nucleic acids remember the nitrogenous bases, the <coughs> adenine, thymine, those have nitrogen in them. So you gotta have nitrogen to make those. Proteins, amino acids are made. Up, make up proteins. Every amino acid has a, at least one nitrogen in it. So plants have to get those from their environment. Well, the air out here that we're walking around in is 80% nitrogen. It's inert gas for the most part, unless you are uh, unless you dive deep, dive, and it becomes an issue. But for us, it's pretty much doesn't matter. Uh, every breath you take is 80% nitrogen. Doesn't make any difference. The problem is, though, <coughs> nitrogen atoms will pair together in it's N2. It's like O2, not O. N2 is the same thing. And they form three covalent bonds to hold those two nitrogen atoms together. They ain't coming apart, not easily. Plants can't make, can't get them apart. The only way plants can get nitrogen is by these bacteria that will form, that will actually grow inside little nodules on the roots of the plants. See them right up here. The plant provides sugars to the bacteria, so that they can make enough ATP to rip those nitrogen atoms apart and make ammonia, NH. And then they, that can be turned into a nitrogen source for the plant. Now, of course, the other way you get that is you can use chemical fertilizers, but if you didn't have that, and before that was common, people would rotate crops. You would grow beans in one year. Beans are legumes, they have those little things on them. They leave more nitrogen in the soil than they take out. The next year you plant corn. Corn corn, uh, and tobacco is the same way. Sucks nitrogen out of the soil, doesn't put anything back in. You can only grow it productively in the same spot for maybe one or two years, and then you've exhausted the soil. And then you need to switch to growing beans or clover or you know something there, alfalfa, that We'll put nitrogen back into the soil. Now, today we just buy chemical, and we inject we, we inject either ammonia or urea directly into the ground from the back of the, of the tractor. Okay. But how are those produced? Those are produced using fossil fuels. They don't just they up just out there somewhere. Uh, they have to make. Them. So, so these bacteria are really important for us, particularly for plants. Um, We mentioned cholera. Rickettsias are very tiny little bacteria. One of them causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever. This is another disease that's endemic in this area and and ticks. Um, It's actually not common in Colorado or in the Rocky Mountains. uh, Virginia has some of the highest numbers of cases in the country of this. It's dangerous. It can be life-threatening. If you get a tick bite and it's been on you more than I don't know about eighteen hours. You're really attached. You need to go. You need to. It, you would be best to talk to a doctor. Okay. You don't know because you're not going to know if you get one of these right away. Okay. They'll probably put you on doxycycline or something for a couple of weeks, which is kills both the organism and And there's another one here, ehrlichiosis, and so on. Okay, these are the uh, spirochetes, syphilis. This is the uh, bullseye signature of Lyme disease, but not everybody gets those. So if you get a a tick bite and you see a red ring around it, you need to go see a doctor because you're going to get Lyme disease. Lyme disease is very serious. Treatable, particularly in the early stages, easily treated. So this colder weather, you should be actually hoping for cold weather, lots of cold weather, in that really keeps the tick population down. A lot of the ticks don't survive in really cold. Up until the last week here, so, I not been any cold weather this year. That means more ticks next year. So, so cold weather is, in that sense, is an advantage. It also kills overwintering mosquitoes, uh, which is always handy. Okay, these are the uh, cyanobacteria. Uh, Lactobacilli. Um, We use these. They live on your skin. They live in the vagina. It's what makes the vagina acidic so that yeast won't grow in there most of the time. Okay? They're good. They're called lactobacilli. There's lots of them in there. millions and millions of them. Uh, They also grow on your skin. We use them in foods. If anybody eats yogurt here, it says active cultures. But bacteria in there to convert milk into, to ferments, converts milk into um, yogurt. Plain yogurt is really sour, if you've ever had that. Why? Because it's lactic acid fermentation. It's producing lactic acid. This what sort of curdles the milk, turns it into yogurt. And then most people don't like to eat it without something sweet added to it. But uh, that's what we do. And then we have Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and so on. This is some of the bacteria. Spore producers. Botulism uh, is the other one. Um, don't see that much anymore. Home canning is usually the primary source of that. If you don't, when you do home canning, if you don't cook your product in the jar long enough to kill all the spores, then they can start growing and they release a toxin. And you can't taste the toxin. You can't smell the toxin. What it does is it. Inhibits muscle contraction. And it can be a problem. You know, people die from it sometimes. It's the yes, the opposite of mm-hmm. Get you one way, they get you the other way. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is what an endospore looks like. Very heat resistant, to boiling acids, drying heat. Then, when conditions are favorable, it will bacteria will emerge out of that and begin to grow yeah how long will these keep we don't know they have actually found spores in Egyptian tombs that when put in proper conditions will begin to grow we have no idea how long they can last okay chlamydia is another one this is an intracellular parasite it lives inside your cells okay? Um, they're found everywhere mammals, birds um, it is the most the single most common STD uh, In many cases uh, it's not very uh, symptomatic. They live inside your cells because they can't they don't have the machinery to make ATP all right so what do we do when we can't make ATP? We get ourselves inside another cell and we just suck some of that ATP from them and, and we're happy. Then there's the archaeans. archaeans uh What's the time here? Yeah, okay, not, not too bad. Uh, they um, generally live in really um, extreme environments. Some of them produce methane. Some like salt. Some like heat. Um, methanogens. Um, around here, of course, we have lots of uh, marshes, salt marshes. Have you ever walked in a salt? How many of you ever actually stepped in a salt marsh? Okay. There's that nice smell that comes up, that sulfurous stuff. and then there's also uh, methane. Methane comes up out of the muck. You get a good whiff of that. It's pretty obvious. That's being made by bacteria down in there. They're anaerobes primarily. Um, they live in the best of animals. Cows produce lots of methane. We do, too. Okay. You get a choice. It's just the way things work. Hydrothermal okay. um, Hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, these have a pretty major impact on, on uh, carbon cycling, you know, the, the uh, release of methane into the air, which is a, uh, methane is a uh, is one of the greenhouse gases. One of the concerns that because it's warming, and this has been documented already in Alaska, you know, in Alaska you have permafrost. You dig down more than a, most of the places a couple feet, the soil has been frozen for oh, nobody knows how long. Well. As it slowly warms, that that melting goes lower in the soil. The bacteria become active and they release methane and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. To say nothing of the fact that if your house is built on it and it starts to melt, your house kind of goes like that and falls apart. It's a real problem. Yeah, this was supposed to be. Uh, this is how we're going to make our greenhouse targets. We've got a cow that doesn't release anything. Well, cows are not going to do well with that. They make a lot of methane. Okay, some like most living things, we use salt to cure things, right? We traditionally have used salt as a way of not, not curing diseases, but curing foods, protecting foods. Uh, before refrigeration was common, which none of you would remember, I don't either, but I've been in countries where there is not refrigeration everywhere. You salt things, okay? You add salt to them. Salt dehydrates the bacteria, kills them, prevents them from growing. Okay, we've always done that. All right, but we have bacteria, some bacteria that like salt. They're not pathogens, so they're not a problem. Great uh, Salt Lake, Dead Sea, lots of these organisms live there. They incorporate salt into their cell wall. If you take the salt away, their cell wall falls apart and they die. They're adapted to living in that environment where almost where very few other things can live. Uh, this, what you're seeing here, are these are uh, areas where salt water's been led into, areas with dikes around them and, and is evaporating to produce salt. Sea salt. Okay, that's how you get sea salt. You let seawater evaporate and then you scrape up the salt. Okay. Um, and the different colors indicate different organisms as it gets saltier and saltier, different organisms thrive in those environments, and that's why you see the different colors in the pot. In the, in the uh, this is, uh, anybody been to Yellowstone Park? Here? Okay. The, the pools, these morning glory pools and things, uh, you can see that they're different colored bacteria. the the middle of these things, the temperature is above the boiling point of water. There are bacteria that live there, happily live there, but then as it flows out and cools, they don't survive anymore, and now you get different bacteria, and you get these different colorations around these pools based on temperature, really uh, really kind of an interesting place. So that's, that's it on bacteria. We'll talk about viruses next time. I'm going to have a case study for us to work on as well. Um, So you won't have to just listen to me the whole class. I'm going to get you guys to do some some work. Okay? Enjoy your long weekend.